Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When my mother was in her mother's womb, and I was like an egg in my mother's ovary. You know, my, my grandmother was like in active grief because she, she had been through these losses and she'd lost her own father when she was a child. And there was just a lot of loss and grief. And so I, I do see it now as sort of this pattern of people coping and doing the best they can to raise the, the children that they end up with and are responsible for. And my mother's mother sort of anxious and depressed and my mother sort of anxious and depressed and me as a young woman and as a young mother myself really trying to break that pattern and 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 get a lot of help and do a lot of self improvement work and self discovery because of of not wanting that to be the story for for many generations going forward Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me, I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls and the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives and that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you. What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are. Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, 
I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story, what happened to them, how they got through, and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hey beautiful souls, thank you for being here. There is something deeply moving about this week's episode. There's no abuse, narcissism, drugs or alcohol or any of the things that we've been talking about here on the How My Parents Raised Me podcast. There's just this deep, deep sadness for a child who never felt the love. And we talk about generational trauma and we understand that that starts a long way back in your family, maybe many generations before. And if nobody has ever been able to recognize it and turn it around, it can be so much a part of who we are that we can't even understand that it's there. And this is how it was for Kim, because Kim's mum was dealing with a lot of grief from various miscarriages and Her grandmother was also in active grief for many years and that was their life, doing the best they could to cope but leaving Kim alone without love in a cold and abandoned world. And that lack of love or care is held so deeply and it changes everything about how you see yourself and how you see the world and Kim's paternal grandmother was her saving grace. Graham's home was warm and loving and it taught Kim that there was another way to feel when you were in somebody's space. And when Graham was dying a few years ago, her parting words to Kim were, enjoy your life. These simple words have been like a puzzle for Kim as she started on a journey to figure out just that. How could she enjoy her life? What was missing? What could she do to honour the grandmother that always loved her unconditionally? Please join me in hearing Kim's story. Let's talk about you as a a little kid, like around five or six years old. How would you describe yourself? Uh, I would say as a child, I was pretty solemn. Some described me around me would tease me about being sour, but just serious and very observant, kind of wide-eyed, taking everything in. Uh, I remember my mother making a, a, a lot of contrast between um, the way that my brother was, which was kind of um, gleeful and jolly and kind of cuddly and sweet. And he's 13 months younger. And she, I always remember her telling people that uh, I was the kind of baby that would arch my back if you tried to cuddle me, but my brother would melt on your shoulder like a piece of cheese on a cheeseburger. She always said that how, how my brother was so cuddly. And there's a lot of pictures of us as children where uh, he's grinning with his arm around me and I'm scowling and kind of stiffening away from that, you know, kind of cuddly kind of touch. So um, that really, I think, was a big factor in those early years that we were kind of like Irish twins and people thought we were twins because we were the same size but I was the older one and definitely the more more serious one. Yeah so it's interesting isn't it how parents compare and you hear them talking about that sort of stuff over and over and over as you grow up and you kind of get put into a category don't you well I am this 
thing. And even if you want to break out of it, it's kind of hard to do that when you just think that's who I am because I'm being told that's who I am constantly. It's true. And I can look back now and see uh, some of what was going on with me as, you know, really being gifted and having this kind of old soul and this observational nature that really was um, wanting to, to take everything in and, and understand the world around me. But adults, well-meaning adults really took it as, you know, poking fun at me that I was a sourpuss and, and, and not having fun and not like the other kids and things like that. Was there a level of anxiety around you as a child? I'd say yes. I would say that um, in retrospect, I always had a, a vague uneasiness um, from my earliest memory. And I know now that my parents had kind of a, a, an unhappy marriage from, from day one. And so when my brother and I were three and four, we were put into paid childcare. And this was in the, in the mid seventies and not everybody's, you know, went to childcare at that time. A lot of people had, you know, moms have stayed home, but my mother got a job because she hoped to leave my father, which then didn't end up happening for many years. But I think at that time that we were thrust into childcare, it was not only, you know, kind of a surprise to be dropped off in the, in the yard of a, of a school type setting when we were so small, but I think it, the, I, I know now the context of that must have been very stressful because she wasn't really getting a job because she wanted one, but more because she felt like she needed money to try to get out of the marriage and things like that. Yeah. So there was probably a, quite a bit of anxiety around everything at that stage then. So tell me a little bit more about your, your mum when you were growing up. What sort of relationship did you have with her? Um, I really have had a lot of exploration of this and I feel like um, my sense of my mom at that time was that she was sort of detached and absent and I look back now and realize that she was struggling with her own mental health but I have a lot of memories I've done therapy and I, I did EMDR I don't know if you know what that is yeah. but when those memory really early memories kind of were brought back up in therapy I always said it felt like she wasn't, she wasn't there. She wasn't home, except that I know logically that, you know, when I was one year old, when she was expecting my brother, when I was two years old, when I was three years old, she would have physically been there. But my, my memories and my sense of these things was that she was not present, not available to me. And as I grew up, I just have always said that we just weren't close. We just didn't have a close bond. She did take care of me. Um, but my feelings about my, my young life is that I was always fending for myself and kind of looking out for myself, not looking out for my brother, who's very close in age, it, my brother. And then later, a few years later, when my sister came along, I feel like everybody was fending for themselves, the whole family. When, even when my father was still with us, everybody was just fending for themselves. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. And tell me a bit more about your dad. How, what was he like? My dad, I think in a different generation might have just chosen not to be married. He's very independent. He really likes to do his own thing. I think he, um, my parents got married in 1969. Um, I think in the 60s, there was just a lot of family pressure on them that they should be married. They got married in their mid-20s and like their, everyone around them was already married, had gotten married at 
19 or 20 or 21. So they were 26 and 28 and everybody was like, you need to get married. I just don't think he felt very cut out for family life. Uh, I don't think he really wanted to have children, even if he had been married. Um, I don't think he just knew quite what to do with all of it. And so he really truly wasn't around a lot when I was a child. He worked long hours and he had a, a whole social life. And that was, you know, part of what all of their conflict was about was my mother wanted him to come home and, and, and be a family man. And he really didn't want to do that. So there was just always tension between them. And they ended up separating, reconciling, having my sister, she's eight years younger and ultimately um, divorcing when I was in my early teens. It just felt like an inevitability that had just been a long time coming at that point. Yeah. When you were talking about your mum and that sort of absence, do you think that that came from her parents as well? Was that the relationship she had with her mum? I do. And I think, I mean, she speaks very glowingly about her mother and her, her mother's devotion. And, but I remember my mother's mother and she presented to me like someone who was sort of clinically depressed and a functional alcoholic. She, she just stayed home and drank and seemed very sad. You know, as you, as I learn a little bit about ancestral trauma, my grandmother, my mother's mother, um, she lost a couple of babies, one from crib death, uh, one immediately before having my mother and one immediately after having my mother uh, that passed away in the hospital and didn't come home from the hospital. So she had six children. The two boys didn't make it past infancy. And then she had four daughters that she raised. But when you start to talk about ancestral trauma and all of the trauma in the body and stress hormones. It's like, you know, when my mother was in her mother's womb and I was like an egg in my mother's ovary, you know, my, my grandmother was like in active grief because she, she had been through these losses and she'd lost her own father when she was a child. And there's just a lot of loss and grief. And so I, I do see it now as sort of this pattern of people coping and doing the best they can to raise the the children that they end up with and are responsible for and um my mother's mother sort of anxious and depressed and my mother sort of anxious and depressed and me as a young woman and as a young mother myself really trying to break that pattern and 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 get a lot of help and do a lot of self improvement work and self discovery because of of not wanting that to be the story for for many generations going forward wow yeah that's oh just when you when you're talking about your grandmother losing all those babies and she was probably living in a time where you know you're not getting help you're not getting antidepressants or you're not getting therapy and you're just drowning in grief and coping and and then of course it gets passed on to your mom and then you're this little girl who's also feeling so much of that yourself without even, you know, knowing anything about it. It just kind of gets passed on, doesn't it? That's, it's so clear how the trauma runs through families. So tell me a little bit about yourself when you sort of got to school age. Did you socialize well at school? I really loved school. I was, 
you know, really bright for the academic work and an early reader. And so I remember, but I had a strange experience with schooling compared to what's typical here in the States. Most children just go right through public school from the get go. And I had gone to childcare, which before school being school age, which I can most liken to like a Montessori type it was the 70s and we like went barefoot and grew sp sprouts and played guitar and cymbals and sung kumbaya and it was like a real hippie kind of a thing and then um my parents moved and my mother really wanted us to go to catholic school so then i went to catholic school for a short time and had to wear a uniform and we had nuns and we had strict rules to follow so that was like a real culture shock to go from one extreme to another and then ultimately um, the tuition and the expense with Catholic school was too much and we ended up in public school and I went to public school through the rest of the time. So I'd say the same traits were in me when I went to school in terms of being a little anxious, but also being in my best element compared to at home because I felt like teachers saw me and attended to me more than my parents maybe in terms of getting their approval and being able to do schoolwork and get good marks and gold stars and and all of that and it was when i was in high school that I'd, my mother had remarried and i just decided i'm just going to be an adult i'm just going to i'm going to i'm going to get my own life and get my own family and do it all over again better so i got married right out of high school to my high school boyfriend. That's my, that was my first marriage. Um, had children really young myself, all in, a, in an attempt to show I was going to, I was going to do it differently and do it better than my own, own parents had. Wow. That was a really strong feeling for you then, because I don't think a lot of people think about it that way, that they just want to redo it. You know, they're just going to make it better. What age were you when your parents divorced? I think when my parents divorce went through, I was 13. They had been separated quite a while. So it was, you know, by the time I was 11 or 12, uh, my dad got an apartment. He had a series of lady friends who we would sometimes meet, but we didn't have any kind of regular custody schedule to go visit him. It was more like he'd get a whim to come scoop us up and take us somewhere for the day with some lady or and then we wouldn't see him again for quite a while. He always paid his support. And, and I think he felt like that was really his the main responsibility because he hadn't been very hands-on during any of the years. Um, so really from the time I was 12 or 13 and my brother was a year younger and then we had a much younger sister, my mother was really just raising us by herself from that point on yeah. in terms of making any day-to-day day -day decisions and stuff yeah and how was it living in just with your mom what was life like then that's that's really the time when I think I realized the most clearly and internalized that she was just overwhelmed that my sister was much younger and I think my mother's hope had been that when they were expecting that third baby that that was going to fix their problems and that they were going to have a fresh start and you know by the time she was a couple of years old they were already just struggling again and i think she was a little heartbroken she um it really she really took it hard that she was the first she was the last one of her sisters to get married and the first one to get divorced she did a lot of comparing herself to them and was 
really down on herself about the failure of that marriage. I can remember, you know, being junior high school age and she would just, you know, she might fix us something for supper or tell us to fix ourselves something. And then she'd just take my little sister and put her to bed and go to bed. It's like early in the evening. She'd just, she'd just go to bed for the night. My brother and I would just be kind of on our own. And, and she had to work, of course, because she had responsibilities that way. So a lot of times during that phase, we would come home after school and just be there by ourselves. And most of my sense of that, I mean, you know, like anyone, you talk to a lot of people who have these stories, you don't really think of anything that goes on in your family as that abnormal because you don't have anything to compare it to. Um, but I look back now and I think, wow, you know, we had so much leeway to just, we didn't get into a lot of trouble. We did have, you know, we had some pretty knockdown drag out fights like siblings will, but we didn't, I didn't roam outside the house and get into any trouble. My brother actually did, as we got older, start to get into trouble because of the lack of supervision. But I very clearly felt like she has too much on her plate. You can't do anything except do everything right and go to school and get good grades and don't ask for anything and don't, don't be a bother. And I know that that still, that, that sense in me still plays a role in the way that I interact with people right to this day. I have to be mindful that it's okay to be a bother and it's okay to, you know, ask people for help or to ask people to go out of their way. Because, you know, ultimately, I think it was out of love that I just felt like, you know, I just don't want to bother her or put anything else on her plate you know yeah absolutely I 100% understand that and I guess when you have a dad that's not really around um and your mum is is really not present you must have just felt a loneliness growing up I did I did and um and didn't again like didn't know that that wasn't how <laughs> you're supposed yeah. to feel mm -hmm. and I think in some ways, you know, I had a, I have a big part of my story that's about losing my gram seven years ago and, and she's my father's mother. But it was really in, with my grandparents, my father's parents when I was a child that I had any sense of like their, their home to me was this like oasis of safety and like peace and harmony. That was the only thing that made me understand like, oh, there's another way to feel when you're like in somebody's space and in their energy. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. Isn't it? That that was the only place that you felt that sense of warmth or belonging. Were they the people that you felt closest to, or was there anybody else in your life when you really needed to talk to somebody? Was there anybody else around? No, I mean, in my, in my young childhood, it was really my grandparents that gave us that sense of safety and stability. And then, you know, by the time I got to be uh, more junior high age, like when my parents were separating and divorcing, like I had friends at school that I had a couple good friends and one who's, who's still in my life to this day. But my grandparents, my grandmother, I had my grandmother until I was about to turn 40. She lived to be 95. So she was in wow. my life till I was about to turn 40. And in so many ways, the way that she made me feel when I was a little girl 
never changed. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful how you can just have that one person in your life that can make you feel loved, isn't it? Yeah. So when you got into your high school years, tell me how you, how you manage that because high school is, is tough and stuff happens. And sometimes we, we need to turn to people. What was your high school experience like? Well, school was still my other safe place in terms of the structure and understanding what was expected of me. So I did well with, with the school piece and with my schoolwork and grades. Um, but I felt that that sort of drive to hurry up and grow up and get, get out of, get out of the house. I didn't want to stay at home. My mother, after going through a few low years, she had ended up dating and then remarrying my stepfather, who's still my stepfather. They've been married almost 30 years now. And as soon as she got busy with her putting her new life together, getting focused on him and thinking about a different house, I was like, I just want to get out on my own. I don't want to go with them to their new life. I'm just going to, when I finish school, I'm going to leave. I did. I moved the next day. My mother will still remind you. I moved the very next day after graduation. Um, but my, the boy that I was dating at the time, the man who's, you know, the father of my children, my former husband, I just really scripted him into the role of you're going to help me save myself from this situation. And so we went right into living together and quickly married and had a baby on the way because I just wanted my own life. I didn't want to have to stay at home and didn't want to have to deal with either of my parents anymore. I felt like I just had, it was like a marathon (laughs) to get to 18 with just doing things on my own. At least that's how I felt. And so I, I just was in a big hurry that, and that colored the last part of high school. Like I did do things like prom and the things high school kids do, but I wasn't really in the experience of high school. I was like scanning the horizon for how many more days till I can just get out of home and just have this, this growing up thing over with. And so how old were you when you got married? 20. Right. Yeah. And, and you had a, a baby at what, 21 or something? Yeah, I was 22 when he was born. So got, got married at 20 and then um, was expecting a baby a year later and had the baby at, at our second wedding anniversary. So he, my son's going to be 25. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And my daughter's 21. So I'm, I'm a young, young empty nester now. Yeah, absolutely. So how was that then having your own kids when you didn't have a mum who gave you all the things that we need as, as kids, were you able to find those things? Was, was it easy? I think if anything, you know, I've, I've been praised for being a good mom and I certainly put my heart and soul into it. But I think if anything, you know, mistakes that I made or things I could have done better were just out of trying very hard to do the opposite of what I felt like I had. So I hovered over them and, and tried to anticipate their problems and <laughs> solve them before they happened because I very much never wanted them to feel the way that I felt. I never, I never wanted them to feel like I had too many problems or my plate was too full. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, I didn't give them the opportunities to fail. And I was, I was pretty clingy and hovery and involved, but with good intentions. And certainly I think they did always know and still know that 
they're my priority. And my mother may have felt that way, but it didn't come through to me. It didn't get communicated somewhere there. Yeah. Yeah. So that marriage didn't last forever and you ended up with a second husband that you're married to now. So tell me a little bit about that, that marriage. Yeah, we were super young and, uh, and I was driven by, I can now see, you know, a lot of magical thinking around, well, you just find somebody who will marry you and, and have a baby and you'll live happily ever after. And you'll show everybody that you, you know what you're doing and you know how to do this adult thing. It looked so much easier from, you know, the childlike vantage point. Um, and so we were married seven years and, and just struggled with, I just wasn't happy. I mean, I hadn't done any of this work that I'm talking about having done on myself since. And we just decided we would be better off apart. We separated and divorced. Uh, he remarried fairly quickly. Those, that was only a short time. It was only a couple of years that I was on my own with my kids before I met my now husband. Um, we've been married 17 years, but that was my really low point when I was alone with them because, you know, I'd felt so alone a lot of my life already. And then here I was, and I had the two of them to provide for. And of course I was from a broken home. I don't, I'm putting air quotes up. I don't like that expression, but I had been through my parents separating and that was nothing I ever, I don't think anybody would choose that for children, but it, it definitely, was very disappointing. I was very disappointed for myself, in myself, hard on myself. And I'm, I'm so grateful I had them because they are why I kept going. And then I met my husband now. Uh, we had a very um, romantic whirlwind. I felt like this is why all of the hard things that had ever happened in my life had all led me to this kind of fairy tale. And, and then we struggled and, and, uh, and some of that was the same thing was I just kept expecting that I'd paid my dues and everything should be easy. And we had some trouble with communication. We had some trouble with um, food and weight. We had a big weight gain. That's a big part of my story. We later lost that weight. But I think that the same thing was, was playing itself out. I, I, and I'm still learning to this day how to ask for what I need because it just, it, it's, it seems like a very basic process. And I know children who've had a, a tough childhood just haven't learned that process of saying, this is what I need. And then being able to receive it. I still would say at baseline, feel like I'm on my own to figure things out. And I'm having to really, um, just now I'm 47. And it's in the last year or two uh, that I've really just started saying, you know, if you want something, you just have to ask. People can't read your mind. <laughs> and being timid about saying so puts you into a cycle where you end up with your unmet needs, your resentment, your disappointment. And I feel really crystal clear that I've spent so much of my life feeling that way, frustrated and resentful and disappointed that it's just top of the list of how I don't want to feel now. And so I have to design my life and all of my relationships with the goal of not feeling resentful. And so I have to say how I feel and ask for what I want and negotiate things and make changes when I need to make them. But that has not come easier naturally. It's really hard to feel 
safe asking for what I need because I think that I just had early experiences where I just think I got the message that you just shouldn't do that. It just, that it's just not okay to do. Yeah. And I think when we're not taught how to communicate or we're not told it's okay to ask for something, you spent your whole life trying not to be a bother and trying not to ask for anything or create waves. When you are spending your whole life doing that, you never learn how to just ask for the simple things or communicate what you need. It's just part of understanding that it's something that we're allowed to do. It it can take us so many years to figure those things out. It's just not part of what we're doing. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And then when you marry your second husband, tell us a little bit more about the, the weight gain and the circumstances around that. Well, I think it's, it's all tied together. There's like a nice through line through this whole story. But my husband had uh, his own interesting childhood experiences, had been an uh, anxious and introverted kind of child as well. Um, had had, when we met, I knew that he had had a struggle with weight. I met him when he had just had a very significant weight loss and it was part of his story that he had had this weight problem. Um, but he believed it was behind him that he had, had resolved it and solved it. And he was feeling healthy and well. And I, after this low point with my own young divorce had started to work on myself, got back into school, had made some new friends, was getting my life together. And so we came together in this moment of, you know, all of our hard times are behind us. We've done our struggling and suffering, and now we're going to live happily ever after. And as we started to just deal with life and, um, you know, sharing custody of two young children with my former husband and his now wife, which, you know, sharing custody is its own sort of stressful shuttling children back and forth and not seeing eye to eye on the way things should be done, dealing with finances. We didn't, my husband and I, Ryan and I did not really communicate about just how stressed and unhappy we were with the way life was turning out. We just turned within, um, used food to cope. And uh, I, I don't think I had ever had very good eating habits, eating Eating healthy meals was not an important part of that growing up story that I just told you. There was a lot of fending for ourselves and, and eating whatever was around. And um, so I, I didn't have a foundation of good eating. And in the context of being very lonely and lonely in the marriage and lonely without my children who were going with their father and um, Ryan's coping around food it just we just fell into a trap with with food and we had 
you know, not as, I mean, people gain weight when they get married. It's a punchline of a joke, but, you know, we had a very significant um, weight gain and it really was um, my grandmother's death. So my grandmother, she lived to be 95 and at the very end of her life, she was looking at me. She had known me all, all 40 years. She was not an advice giver. She was not a finger wagger. Uh, she was just a very steady, constant, loving presence. And at the end of my life, seeing me having gained 100 pounds, which I don't think that part bothered her, the weight itself, but she knew I wasn't happy. And when she died, she said, enjoy your life. Those were her parting words. That was her, that was her gift to me. And uh, I set out to do that. I, this, this journey that I've been on the past seven years, which, of which losing the weight is the least interesting part, um, has been inspired by her um, in honor of her to figure out how to enjoy life. And it required mostly inner work, as I'm sure you know, but also taking off that weight because that was not enjoyable for me to live in that body. Um, and I, I think my, I wasn't taking good care of my health at any point until now because I didn't have self-love and all the things that come from, you know, finally doing this work. And, you know, this is, these wounds are like, um, heal in these layers where you continue, I continue to arrive at places where I think I want to think, well, this is all behind me and now I have everything figured out. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm mindful not to go into that trap of this being some kind of linear thing that comes to an end and you just keep living awake and staying mindful and present and honest with yourself. And I think that's my, that's my grandmother's, that's the gift of what she left me with when she passed was enjoy your life has turned me into somebody who wants to be self-honoring and wants to do the right thing by myself without hurting anyone else to ask for what I want and, and speak my truth and all of that. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So you said that the weight loss was the least interesting part of the story. What do you think is the most important things that came out of that? part of your journey? Well, I say it was a, a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual transformation. So the physical transformation is the part that created so many stunning photographs and, and created the cover of a book and, and kind of that part of the story is what I can show people. But I think that the rest of the transformation is when I really started to unpack that story that was with that little girl dropped on the playground with her brother who was just afraid and didn't trust the adults, didn't trust the world around her. The transformation I've made in the last seven years is to recognize that um, I always have had spiritual support. I always have had access to resources that I wasn't tapping into in terms of just my own inner strength and capability. And the thing about, uh, waking up to that is even though I still have struggles, like I'll never go back into that mire that I used to be in and get stuck because I know that I have the capability to get out and I know that I have 
inner strength and inner resources and access to, I mean, I do believe my grandmother's spirit is still with me, um, but even beyond her as a spirit guide or an angel, you know, I know that I have access to the universe's support and, and God's support. And that's been the part that I think is a more interesting part of my transformation than just all the dress sizes that I went down and all that. Yeah. Yeah. But it's really just finding self-belief, isn't it? And when you have that one person, which was your grandmother who believed in you and there's nobody else that does. And I think that's true for so many people, you know, that they don't have that many people that actually believe in them. And then that means you don't believe in yourself and you really have to find that belief somehow. And it's not easy. But when you do find it and you start living your life in that belief changes absolutely everything, doesn't it? Yes. So you mentioned before EMDR therapy. I do know a little bit about that. I'd, I'd love you to tell us a bit about how that helped you. Well, it was many years ago and it was um, before Ryan and I got married. So I would have been in my late 20s, I guess. I had been to talk therapy with a few different therapist since a few months here, a few months there. Really, it was trying to just deal with this idea that I even knew that I had anxiety. Like I knew the, how anxiety had felt in my body my whole life, but I had no language to talk about it. It was never diagnosed when I was in school. Um, I was considered daydreamy and distracted in school, but I got all my work done and I didn't cause any behavior problems. So there was nobody who diagnosed me with anything. But in my 20s, um, after I had my babies, and especially when I was divorced and alone with them, I was just struggling day to day with anxiety symptoms, and I went in talk therapy. And one particular therapist did this EMDR, which has to do with moving your eyes, rapid eye movements, actually just almost the same as with hypnosis, follow her finger. There was nothing high tech about it, but follow her finger while she was taking you through this not a regression, not like a past life regression, but just talking you through remembering these early experiences. So we had a, several sessions where she would take me back to remembering these earliest things I could remember. And then in processing it after, she would say, you know, where was your mom? Where was your mom when you were feeling this fear, when you were having this moment? And I would just say, I don't think she was there. I don't, I don't, I would have this memory of this day or this occasion, this thing that happened, my brother got hurt. Well, where was your mom? Well, I know she was there intellectually, logically, she was in the house somewhere, but I didn't feel her presence. I still say, I, you know, I'm sure other people who've done your podcast are like, is my mother going to hear this? <laughs> she doesn't listen to podcasts, but you know, it's hard for her to accept that I tell people, I just don't feel like we have a close bond. Like, I have love for her, but like, if I have a struggle to this day, she's not the person who I pick the phone up to call. Like, we just don't have that bond. We just have an understanding. Um, and I think it's because of her own trauma. And I think that she was, I think her being pregnant through most of my first year of life, an unplanned pregnancy, I think that was very stressful with my brother being on the way during that same year when usually you're bonding with your baby, but she was like pregnant and ill. And I just think that we just didn't bond that way. And uh, so the EMDR really kind of, I guess was validating in saying, you know, 
this is just how you felt like you're a baby or you're, you're a toddler. Like you weren't judging your mother for feeling this way. It's not something you did wrong that you don't feel that sense of her presence as safety or security. It's just that feeling's not there. I would remember being with my grandparents and that's how I felt like very safe. Like they always, they were, they were right there. Like they're even pre visual kind of memories. Like I can, I can sense the feeling of what it was, what their love felt like. And so I'm really grateful that I did have them. Yeah, absolutely. So you've done the EMDR and therapy. Are there any other mindfulness practices or other things that you've done to help your healing? Um, I would say that in my 20s, I was doing traditional talk therapy and medication for anxiety and depression. In my 30s, I wasn't really getting any kind of help um, and also struggling quite a bit. And that's when I had my problem with weight. And in my 40s, I've done all the self-improvement things, you know, meditation. I spend a ton of time in nature and I do journaling of different kinds and I've just read all the self-improvement books and gone to all the self-improvement things. And I just take all of it for, for what it's worth. I don't, I don't think there's a formula for me. I tell people that, you know, it's, it even sounds silly because it's so simplistic, but it was really my grandmother saying, enjoy your life because I had such faith in my grandmother's love. I think when she first would say to me, enjoy your life. It thought, sounded like a foreign concept, but after she died, I was like, she wouldn't have said it if she didn't believe it was possible. And she wouldn't have said it if she didn't want me to have permission. And then everything that I do, when I make decisions about how to eat, how to move, who to be around, what to do with my work, I always look through the lens of, does this help me enjoy my life? Is this, is this helping me have the freedom my grandmother wanted for me? And it's like, a, it's a set of, of guiding principles that just never fails me. It never lets me down because I know my grandmother wants me to enjoy life. And that drives my minute to minute decision and my flow through the world forever. So she really is still with me. I love how simple that is and how much of an impact that had on you because there's so much advice out there there's so much information and just those simple words from your grandmother have changed so much for you in your life and i just think that's extremely powerful so tell me are there any particular books self-help books that you read that have had a big impact the book that i always say has impacted me the most is The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. It's very popular. Um, it introduces the concept of the upper limit problem and the idea that everybody has sort of a built-in thermostat for how comfortable they are with happiness and where they believe their own happiness should be. And that when things in their life start to improve and they start to feel more happy and more free, it can be so uncomfortable that they will self-sabotage to bring that temperature back down. That concept has been explained in many ways, but for me, um, that informs me to this day. I still hit upper limit problems. Dr. Hendricks calls it a, a ULP or an ULP. He'll say you're, someone is ulping if they're sabotaging their own happiness. And 
I still, um, and I know people further along their journeys than me go through this. I will still start to really enjoy my life knowing I'm doing it for Graham and it's what she wanted for me, but there'll be times when that things are flowing so well that I, I start to feel very unsafe because of it, because it seems like a setup and it seems like a trap, but I, I stay aware of it. And I think this is just an upper limit problem. Don't move backward, just trust it and lean into it. And then, you know, every good thing that's happened to me in recent years has been from surrendering to the idea that uh, there is no upper limit on how, how free we should feel or how much we should enjoy life. And so I'm also grateful to Dr. Hendricks for the book um, right along with my grandmother. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love that. So what do you think from your own experiences and then having your own kids, what do you think are the most important things that we need to give to our kids? Uh, that's such a good question. Um, it's really hard for me and some, I have to be really self compassionate and forgiving when I realized that some of my biggest insights about what I believe about life and what's important came right at the time when my kids were not still young enough to be impressionable, but they're not old enough. I mean, I knew, I know for a fact they do watch what I'm going through right now and it does affect them, but they're in their early twenties. So they're very appropriately doing their own thing and kind of in a developmental phase where they don't, <laughs> they don't want to hear a lot from me. Um, but I think the most important thing is um, to just give kids space to be whoever they are without any agenda for what they're supposed to be in your story and in your identity. I understand now that my mom really wanted a happy family for her, her own, you know, same as I repeated her pattern in many ways, but she wanted you know, she wanted me to smile more and not be so sour because she wanted happy kids because having happy kids was part of her story of what success was. And I always felt the sharp contrast that my grandmother had no agenda for me. Like she was purely delighted by my existence. I expect I had the same serious and somber way of being, but I never got any feedback that that wasn't good or wasn't right. My grandmother, um, made me feel like a superstar. <laughs> and you'll hear that it said, you know, you should, what children really need is somebody whose face lights up when they come in the room. That's the way my grandmother was toward me. Even when I was pushing 40 and morbidly obese and felt like a, looked in the mirror and felt like a failure, but she, her face still lit up when she saw me. Yeah, oh, I just love that. I love that. And that's just unconditional love, isn't it? And that's what we all, that's what we all need. It's just, just the love that comes with no judgment and just for exactly who you are. And, and um, it's just such a blessing to have that one person in our life that gives us that. So on Instagram, you are the poster girl for contentment and you have the unbelievable freedom workbooks and you have a podcast. You're doing lots. So tell us all about where we can find you and what you're up to. Yeah. Unbelievable freedom is my business and it really is an extension of my grandmother's uh, legacy. When she said, enjoy your life, I got busy making changes and uh, we wrote a memoir about the weight loss. That's where unbelievable freedom originally came from. That was the name of that first memoir. And then I went on to create a whole series of books uh, that are based on 
if somebody's story inspires you, the next thing you want to know is, well, how can I try to create this change? So the workbooks are sort of habit teaching workbooks by an, a variety of authors on a variety of topics. So the books are at Unbelievable Freedom on Instagram. I personally am at Poster Girl for Contentment on Instagram. And the website is www.unbelievablefreedom.com. Oh, it's all so good. Well, thank you so much, Kim. I've really loved hearing your story today. It's so emotional and just especially hearing everything about your grandmother and and the amazing influence that she's had on everything in your life. It's just so fantastic to have had that person. I love the opportunities to talk about her and uh, she's been gone seven years and still, as you can see, it, it, I'm incredibly moved to, to understand more and more clearly how much she was guiding me along during all of that. Thank you so much for being here. Please check the show notes for all the links related to this podcast, including book recommendations. If you have a story to share, questions about this episode, or want to connect in any way, I would love to chat. Please come and find me on Instagram at My Big Love Project. And please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Can you think of one person whose life might change a tiny bit in a positive way by hearing this episode? Please go ahead and share it with someone you know needs to hear it. These stories are so important. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thank you for joining me. I'll catch you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.